Acts to 349, please and thank you. 349, stand with me if you will. <laughs> Get all that sugar down running. Glory to his name. We'll sing just the first verse and the last. All right, just first and last. All right, here he goes. Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where from cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name, glory to his name, glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied, glory to his name. Come to this fountain so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Yeah, I was trying to get your attention a little bit. I was like, first and last verse. Oh, first okay. and last verse. <laughs> I didn't but you're good. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. All right, why well, Pat come up and sing a solo. <laughs> Wise guy. All right, we are going to be in Revelation. We've been working through the book of Revelation, but had kind of a long reprieve, so we're going to finally get back to it, just in time for me to be gone for a week. Uh, honestly, I've been working through some things with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, I don't know why, but I find it to be a bit of an intimidating book. Uh, just Well, I know I said when we started this study that there is a lot of speculation, a lot of uh, various interpretations and understandings as to what is said and, and being talked about here. So I just want to give it to you right. So, uh, you know, this verse not per se has been, I've been working through some things, but what's coming in the weeks ahead I have been and just felt like I needed a little pause. So well, we're going to get back into it until the next pause. So, <laughs> But uh, why don't we stand together out of respect for the reading of God's Word. One verse. We're going to cover a big old chunk of one verse in chapter 1 this morning. So Revelation 1.8 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Let's go ahead and prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity <clears throat> and privilege that we have to come into your word, to study it, uh, to uh, read it, to uh, work to understand and comprehend what it is that you are saying. And Lord, I pray this afternoon that you'd help us to see exactly what it is you want us to see. Lord, as David 
comprehend in uh, give Psalm 119, 18, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Lord, I just pray you'd open our eyes, help us understand what you want us to see. Bless our time. We ask these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, <clears throat> so we've covered, even though we've only made it through seven verses so far in Revelations, we've covered quite a bit of stuff. And even in, uh, before we even got into verse one, really, we had, I think, three services that were just introduction to the book of Revelation. So uh, we have covered quite a bit, and I'll be honest, the Lord is teaching me and growing me, and I'm learning some things, and God's opening my eyes to some things. So uh, it's a tremendous book, lots of great truth. Um, remember, <clears throat> when we started, we talked about verse one. The title, <clears throat> really the purpose or what this book is, is what verse 1 of chapter 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what the book of Revelation is. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's revealing not only God's plan, Christ's plan for the future, but it's also revealing Christ himself to us. And uh, this verse is a good testimony of that. Now, yes, we know who Christ is, gospel account, and epistles, and leading up to Revelation. But until the book of Revelation, we don't really see Christ fully displayed in his glory. We don't see him as king of kings and lord of lords. We don't see him uh, riding on the horse speaking the words that are going to be the demise of his enemies on the earth and coming to it. We don't see that Christ until the book of Revelation. So he's revealing who he's going to be when he comes, who he really is, who he's going to be when he comes. And he's not the gospel accounts, one who dies on the cross for our sins at this point. He is the one who's going to come and rule and reign with a rod of iron. So that's what he's revealing to us. So... <clears throat> We're getting that uh, in this passage, so or in this book, rather. So in the middle of what's going on here, it's interesting because verse 1 tells us revelation of Jesus Christ um, but, and, and what he's going to do, but then you get to the end of that verse, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. And then we see we're writing, or he's writing, through John. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So it's Christ through the pen of John coming down. Verse 8 is kind of in the place by itself. Verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother. So it goes from John to verse 8 to John. I got a little surprise for you guys. I forgot the handouts. Surprise! Somehow they got pushed all the way in there, and I forgot. Elijah, can you help me with these? Thank you. It's, it's that, and then the little piece there. Yep. So while I'm waiting for Elijah to hand those out, and guess what? We haven't even got to our first blank yet, so we're okay. We're good. Um, we're doing good. But um, So <clears throat> it is interesting that we go from... Revelation of Christ through the perspective of John. Verse 9 goes back to from John, but verse 8, I am in red, Christ. He just kind of 
drops this verse in there. And uh, so that I don't get too far ahead of myself, we'll pause for a second. But it's just interesting placement. And I think there's some reasons for that. I know there's reasons for it. Christ doesn't do anything uh, without a purpose. And he certainly doesn't do anything in his word without a purpose. In fact, I even go so far as to believe every word has its purpose. You know, he didn't use different... He used the words he used for a reason, to communicate the truth that he wants to communicate. And it's not by accident, it's not by chance, it's not by mistake. I don't even believe it was by the translators. Christ gave us the word. So, Come on, Elijah, we're waiting on you, bud. Chop, chop. Elijah, Caleb, is, his hands are full. Don't worry about him right now. I know. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. It's true. What's brotherly love look like, though? But I don't think it looks like what we were seeing there. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, <clears throat> our first blank. Okay, before we get to the first blank. So, one of the things Christ is doing here with this verse is he is demonstrating a specific truth, probably one of the most attacked truths out of the Bible, and that is the doctrine. Oh, that is the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Um, it is Christ here that is saying, I am Alpha and Omega. Remember, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. So it is Christ declaring his deity. So this is the doctrine that declares Christ as God. In case anybody's not sure or familiar with what the deity of Christ means, um, it is declaring that Christ is God. <clears throat> Of all the doctrines in the Bible, this is one of, if not the most attacked Bible doctrine. Why is that? Well, because if Christ is not God, what do we have? I guess we've got Judaism at this point. Uh, you know, we don't have Christianity. Um, so Christ has to be God or else we're wasting our time. Um, so if Satan can attack that doctrine and try to strip the Bible or strip the truth of Christ's deity away, then... He disrupts Christianity. He, he ruins it, spoils it. And can I say this? He's been trying to do just that since, you know, the beginning of time. He's been trying, exactly. He's been trying to call into question God's word and the validity of it and the accuracy of it. It hasn't changed. So this is because if Christ is not God, then Christianity is a hoax. That's, I got ahead of myself there. So some might say, then, that this is the most important doctrine in the Bible because without it, we have no Christianity. Uh, you know, I'll let you wrestle within yourself if it's the most important doctrine or not, but it's way up there. We'll say that. Um, it, is, it is an important doctrine. It's hard to say any doctrine is more important than the other, you know, but I think the doctrine of the Word of God is a pretty important one because if we don't have the Bible, we don't have the truth. Well, if Christ isn't God, then... Same kind of deal. We're, we're wasting our time. We are, we are not investing our time wisely. So 
Let's look at a, a passage of scripture, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter number 5, we'll begin in verse 30. Acts 5 and verse 30. <clears throat> All right, it says, The God of our fathers... Okay, so this is, uh, this is uh, Peter. Um, so Peter and the other apostles, they just dealt with um, being taken um, for preaching and uh, verse... 29 says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. He wasn't bold or anything, was he? <laughs> Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. And we got Gamaliel coming in here, verse 33. Then they heard that, uh, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space and said unto them, ye men of Israel, take heed to, to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. That was verse 39, 40. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. So, uh, you know, take away the doctrine of Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Peter had just declared to them. Verse 31, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Well, then Gamaliel over here is saying, Hey, listen guys, there's no sense in fighting against this. We've seen at least two examples in somewhat recent history that if what these guys are preaching isn't true. Now that Jesus is dead, he isn't, but in their mind, now that Jesus is dead, if it's not, if it's not of God, if it's of man, then it's just going to fade away and go away. If it's of God, well, then we can't fight against it anyway. So you might as well let them do their thing and just see what happens. Well, guess what? Here we are, 2,000 years later. People are still doubting the deity of Christ. If any of them had half the sense of Gamaliel, they'd get smart and probably get born again, but they haven't. So uh, we just keep doing what we do, worshiping the one true God, knowing he's risen again, and that we serve a Savior who loves us and died for us. What a blessing. So we know that Christianity still exists today and that the very wise words of Gamaliel have thoroughly rung true.
Uh, so they are still as true today as they were 2,000 years ago. It's an interesting placement for the verse. I know we've talked about this a little bit already. Uh, and of course, I know I already told you, it's of no accident. Christ put it exactly where he wanted it for a purpose. So Christ places this random and yet not so random statement here to declare his deity. He's making this clarifying statement in the book, which was written to reveal him to us. While John is the penman, and the book is to reveal Christ, he clarifies here that he is the actual author of the book, and in case it isn't clear, he is God. So, uh, who wrote the book of Revelation? Well, I mean, you could say John, I always, just my personal preference, I like to refer to John as the penman, uh, and Christ as the author. Um, I can't say that I will never slip and call John the author, but if I do, know that that's not what I really mean. If I say Paul said, I mean Paul penned, but it's inspired by God. It is God's word. So um, if we're wondering who the author here is, well, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's our author right there. It is Christ giving us this revelation. So he reveals some interesting pieces about his deity in this verse. What he's saying is not a general blanket, I am God. He uses some specific names to point out some specific truths. Look with me at Isaiah 41.4. Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41 and verse number 4. <clears throat> it says, Who hath wrought and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first and the last, am he. Isaiah 44 and verse 6. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. Amen. Isaiah 48, verse number 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob. And Israel, my called. I am He. I am the first. I also am the last. So we cross reference those with our Revelation 1 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. You know, beginning and ending, first and last. Uh, interestingly, He referred, so we have those records in Isaiah, okay? Interestingly enough, He refers to Himself as the Almighty the very last statement in Revelation 1.8. You know where, oops, there's your blank, almighty. You know where else uh, he is, I'm getting ahead of myself. Next, the next blank here. It is important to note that many of the titles given to God in the book of Revelation are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Blank there is new. But are seen all over the place in the Old Testament. So interestingly, the Almighty, this is where I was about to say, I should have made that font bigger, shouldn't I? 
The Almighty is a great example of this. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament except in one place, which is a quote from the Old Testament, in 2 Corinthians 6.18. It says, And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So, that's the only New Testament passage where Christ is referred to as the Almighty. But in the Old Testament, God is frequently called the Almighty. Well, why is that? Well, we're going to get there. So the name Lord God, which is often used in Revelation, is not found in other New Testament books either, except 1 Peter 3.15, unless a quote or citation is being made from the Old Testament. So 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God, there's our statement, in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So Lord God... Uh, we see, uh, we will see also in the book of Revelation. Excuse me. So, who is so, uh, what is so significant about this? God said to Moses in Exodus 6, 2 through 3, it says, And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. So the name Almighty was the name in which God entered into covenant with Abraham regarding the inheritance of the land of Canaan. So that is where we see this name grabbing its significance. <clears throat> trying not to get too fast, but I sometimes get a little excited and then I get really rolling. So forgive me if I start going too fast. Just wave or throw something at me. <clears throat> so the name Lord God was the title that he entered into covenant with Israel. And I have it in my notes here too, but let's turn over to Genesis 28. I don't know why I put so many. Sometimes I try to give you a little break from flipping around because I know we do flip around a fair amount, but I don't want to give you so many breaks that you're not using your Bible. So, Genesis 28. Helps keep us awake, too, when we get to do something, <laughs> especially after lunch. Uh, so, Genesis 28 and verse number 13. It says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it into thy seed. So that was to Jacob. That was following his dream. And uh, that was God via the name Lord God making the commitment to Jacob that the land he was on, he was going to give it to him. So Jacob, we know, God changed his name to what? Israel. Israel, right. So it was under the name Almighty that God entered into covenant with Abraham. It was under the name Lord God that he entered into covenant with Israel. So both of these covenants are connected with, there we go, with the earth and have their fulfillment in the millennial reign of the Messiah. Notice both of those covenants had to do with the land that Abraham and that Israel were going to have, that they were going to possess. So that's why I say it had connected to the earth. And we will see it fulfilled in the millennial reign of the Messiah. So is God done with Israel? No, no he is not. Thank you. He is not done with Israel. The, 
the crowd that is preaching and pushing replacement theology, it's wrong, it's heresy. Um, that's where Calvinism comes from. That's where this new, um, oh, come on. What is it called? Messianic Jews. There we go. That, that whole movement, that's where these coming, are coming from. It is all just replacement theology. And whether it's that the church becomes Israel or the church replaces Israel, whatever it is, it's all the same thing. It's to say that God is done with Israel. And he's not. His promise is going to be fulfilled. His, what he has with us, we are, here's, here's what I believe. And maybe I'll teach or preach on this again sometime soon. But there's two kingdoms in the Bible. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. I believe they are two separate kingdoms, which will be united, but they're two separate kingdoms. Kingdom of God is spiritual. You and I are a part of that kingdom. How do we come a part of that kingdom? John chapter 3, unless a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. There you go. you got to be born into the kingdom. When we're born into the kingdom, we are spiritually quickened with Christ. We are made a part of the spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is a physical kingdom. That is going to be here during the millennial reign. That is for Israel. Two separate kingdoms. They are going to exist. They will exist at the same time during the millennium. We'll be here during the millennium, and Israel will be here during the millennium. But they're two separate kingdoms. And uh, when we understand that, boy, the Bible starts to make more sense when we read it and interpret it through that light. And, and again, I know I did this not too long ago. I don't have off the top of my head. I think it's in Corinthians where it actually says the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but it is in you. It's telling us it's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. It says you can't say yay here or Lo there, it's something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing the NP, NPV, Nathan Pelkey version. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's spiritual, the kingdom of heaven. I'm sorry, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is physical. And it makes sense. God is a spirit. Heaven is a place. So spiritual kingdom, physical kingdom. Um, that's how, that helps me remember which is which uh, that way. You know where the kingdom of heaven is talked about exclusively? The book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew is presenting Christ as king of the Jews. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, what's he going to be when he rules and reigns during the millennium? The king of the Jews. And the Jew, Christ will rule the earth, but through the nation of Israel, all the kingdoms will be ruled. So, little rabbit trail. Maybe that's something I need to actually hunt down one of these days, but uh, we won't go any further than that for today. So, <clears throat> Both of the covenants, yep, with the Messiah. So it's pretty amazing because God is at this point shifting things towards his plan for the earth. He's getting ready to fulfill his promise to his people. Um, again, Israel is the people. The book of Revelation, I, I know I've got this in my notes, so I won't get too far ahead of myself here. He's not referring to himself as the God that we know in our present age, the church age. He's actually referring to himself as the God that was known in the Old Testament that made the covenant with Abraham and with Israel. Interestingly, why is that significant? Well, remember the time frame of this letter. If we look at verse 10, it said the Apostle John, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice of a trumpet. 
Well, what is the Lord's Day? Here's what I believe. The time frame for this book is the Lord's Day, which I believe is the tribulation and the day of Christ's return. When we're reading through the Bible and we see the Lord's Day referenced, or the day of the Lord referenced in the Old Testament, if we look around it, I believe we see prophecy or scripture that points to the Lord's return, the day that he comes back. So that's what I believe John is actually saying. He is writing the book of Revelation from the, from the perspective of being here during the return of Christ in the tribulation period. That's what he's recording, and he's seeing it in a vision, if you will, or however God's revealing this to him. He's showing him what he wants him to see, but the perspective that he's seeing it is though he's standing here during the tribulation and when Christ comes to establish his kingdom. So that's what John's seeing. So that's what this is. So he's writing this from the time frame of the tribulation period. That's what's going on here. So what we know is that we as the church won't be here during the tribulation, right? Or hopefully you realize that. Uh, we'll already be in heaven with Christ. And with that knowledge, the attention of God shifting and calling himself Almighty and the Lord God, those being Old Testament references, helps us grasp that he's shifting attention from the church age to the nation of Israel because that's who the tribulation's for. It's for the nation of Israel. God is going to judge them for rejecting the Messiah. And at the end of the tribulation, you know what's going to happen? The ones who weren't killed during the tribulation are going to, at least the majority of them, are going to receive him, a good chunk of them, as their Messiah. So with that being said, I love how significant this verse is, verse 8, because if you think about it, tribulation period, Christ is saying to the Jews who are still here, I am Alpha and Omega. Who has rejected Christ? Whose rejection of Christ has been the most significant deal in all of history? Israel's rejection of Christ. So he's saying to them, I am. Christ is saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. The God who in Isaiah, we read three different times in Isaiah where he says, I'm the first and the last. He's saying, I am the God that is the first and the last. I am the Almighty. I'm the one who made the covenant with your father Abraham. That so often Israel refers back to Abraham. Christ is saying, I'm the one who made that covenant with Abraham. I'm the one who made the covenant with Israel. I am your God. He's declaring that to them. The church has already accepted Christ as God. So it's not so significant to the church for Christ to say, hey, by the way, I am Alpha and Omega. We know. We've accepted him as our God. We've accepted him as our Savior. We don't have to. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not, not been confused and hasn't been an issue in our age and all those things. But why in the middle of this first chapter, as he's making some of these statements, he just drops this in the middle? Well, I think because he thought God decided it's time for me to just make it real clear to any, any of the folks who've rejected me that I am who I say I am. I am God. So as Christ reveals himself in Revelation, yes, it has great significance to us, to the church. We have much to learn from the book. 
You know who it has the most significance for? Israel. Especially when they're in the tribulation period and they're being hunted and they're being killed and their mark is being distributed and they don't know what's going on and they're trying to figure out what's going on. You know what book they can go to that God has inspired that's going to tell them what's going on? Book of Revelation. When the seals are being opened, when the trumpets are taking place, when all this stuff's going on and they're going, what is this? Then go to the book of Revelation, read all about it. And it'll make a whole lot more sense. When they're going, what do we need to know? Christ says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. In case you've missed it so far, Israel, I am the Messiah. I am Alpha and Omega. Your fathers rejected it. Your grandfathers rejected it. Your great-grandfathers rejected it, and so on and so forth. Now I'm bringing judgment on you as the current living Israelites, the nation, and I want you to know who I am. Just start this thing off right. I am Alpha and Omega, not me, Christ, of course, (laughs) just to be clear. So in the somewhat near future, we are going to go and we'll start to see some of this uh, a little bit more clearly. So when I study the Bible, when I'm interpreting the Bible, I believe we, we can understand a lot of it through three layers of uh, revela- uh, through three layers of interpretation. That's what I want to say. The three layers are historical, doctrinal slash prophetic, one in the same. Uh, you know, sometimes it's doctrinal, sometimes we get prophetic truth. And then the last one is devotional. So some of what we're going to study in the book of Revelation. It's going to apply in three different areas. There will be historical interpretation, there will be a doctrinal or prophetic interpretation, and there will be a devotional interpretation. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that some of this may apply doctrinally or prophetically to Israel. Devotionally, there will be truth that is going to affect us and that can change us. Historically, there were seven churches in in, uh, Asia that John was writing to. Uh, Devotionally, there's some truth that we'll take out of that. Doctrinally or prophetically, I do believe there will be some Jewish churches during the tribulation period that will be operating, and there's going to be some things there that will apply specifically to them. So anyways, I'll leave you with that thought. Hopefully I haven't lost you all, and you're not going, pastor is off his rocker, going crazy. Uh, But uh, prayerfully, there's some stuff there that will get the wheels greased a little bit, get them turning, and and uh, so anyways, fun, I'm having fun with the book of Revelation, uh, learning a lot, getting a lot out of it, and I want to go deep to enough to stretch us and grow us, but not so deep that we're going, you know, feel like we just had a lobotomy or something, you know, I want us to get, huh? <laughs> I want us to get as much as we can out of it and Prayerfully be helped by it. So that's the goal. All right, well, that's what we got for today. Go ahead and close us in a word of prayer. We can fellowship for a little bit as we go. So let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this, this one verse we looked at this afternoon uh, that specifically points to Christ's deity. And it is so important. In a day and age for us, Lord, devotionally, we're living in a day and age where so many deny your deity. We could go home this afternoon 
and we could have someone knock on our door that is going to tell us that Christ was a good man. Might even tell us that he has all authority on this earth. But they will, they will in their heart of hearts believe, and if we were to have enough conversation with them, we'd find that they don't believe he's God, but that he's a created being. And Lord, in the day and age in which we live, many deny the deity of Christ. So it's so important that we understand that you are God. And uh, Father, you are worthy of our worship and our praise. You're worthy of our adoration, of our devotion, of our reverence. And Lord, you're worthy of our obedience and our faithfulness. And I pray we wouldn't forget that, but that we would dedicate our lives to living for you and serving you in all that we do and all that we say, so that, Father, you ultimately will be pleased and glorified on this earth. Father, we just ask you, uh, Lord, to work in our lives. We love you and praise you and thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen.